We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. A new show is coming to the Contemporary Jewish Museum this week, and it's all about Muppets. The Jim Henson exhibition, Imagination Unlimited, opens Friday and explores the array of characters that sprang forth from Henson's band of weirdos. In 1978, Kermit, Miss Piggy, Gonzo, and all the rest were seen by 235 million people each week. What made them so popular and irreplaceable? We'll talk with Dave Goles, who performs Gonzo, as well as the curator of the show and Henson's biographer about the legacy of these furry friends. That's coming up next on Forum, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The Muppets are one of the most singular creations in American media. But what are they exactly? <laughs> They're puppets, sure, but they aren't like most puppets, and few puppets remain in popular culture anyway. They're animals, kind of, at least sometimes. Most significantly, they're characters, forged in the creative wild atmosphere of Jim Henson's company, as much theater troupe as capitalist endeavor. Here to begin our conversation, we're joined by Dave Goles, a Muppet performer who gave life to Gonzo, Bunsen Honeydew, and many others. He's now the last of the original generation of Muppet performers still working, and we can claim him as a Bay Area resident, too. Thanks for coming on, Dave. Thank you very much. It's an honor to talk to you, Alexis. It's great. Um, So tell me about creating a character like Gonzo. How did you think about it? Well, it was foisted on me by Jim. Um, our, our head writer, Jerry Jewell, thought of a guy, uh, of a character who would do stupid acts and think that they were high art. And uh, for this, to play this loser, he chose me. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was one of the, uh, that was the first major character I was given. And uh, I was really new to show business. I had no theatrical training whatsoever. I, I was just a, a goofball. And uh uh, so we harnessed that. What had you been doing before you got to the Henson? I'd been an industrial designer at Hewlett Packard. I went to Art Center College of Design in Los Angeles and uh, went into that field. And um, 
I just felt constrained there. I felt like it wasn't my real life. Uh, I, it was fine. I, HP was a terrific company. The folks I worked with were great, but it just didn't feel like the next 40 years ought to be the, me doing that. So I, uh, I, I was open to ideas. And when I saw Sesame Street, I was absolutely riveted. I loved the characters. I loved the consistency of how they dressed, moved, spoke, thought. Uh, I thought it must be the result of a, a really high-level collaboration, which it, it was. Hmm. Uh, anyway, my interest drew me to them, and here we are. And so did puppetry immediately become your outlet, or did you do other kinds of theater while you were working for HP? I did no theater at all, ever. Well, a little bit in high school, a couple of talent shows, but <laughs> that's about it. No, it was, uh, it was, it was truly, I just locked onto the tractor beam. I saw Sesame Street and I thought, who does those things? Who makes the puppets? Who, I was just curious. Who are the writers? Who are the performers? How are they all on the same page? Mm -hmm. uh, you and know, I that saw curiosity you, was what led me to meeting them. I saw you in a documentary called, uh, Muppet Guys Talking, produced mm -hmm. by, by Frank Oz, um, it's pretty amazing, and I want to hear. We have a little cut of Frank Oz, a uh, legendary puppet uh, Muppet performer, talking about sort of how he thought about Grover. Let's listen in. I had a dog, Fred, I think I and uh, he would always kind of look at me like that. And I, Grover, Grover does that. Big Bird. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I sometimes I need a lock for a character, mm -hmm. and sometimes a lock is something that nobody else gets except me. But for a long time, I don't need a lock now. To get into Grover, I went, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for some reason, mm -hmm. <laughs> for some reason that got me into it. Yeah. That was a key for me. Right. I love that. The second you hear that, hmm? you'd like think, oh, yeah, that's Grover. Did you need a lock like that or did you have one of those for Gonzo? Um, it's been so long. I don't even know if I remember. But I, I would say that uh, with Gonzo, I was just projecting my own insecurity onto him in the first season or two. I was, I felt so out of place. I had no idea why I was in show business, you know, with Danny Kaye, Sylvester Stallone, Bob Hope walking in uh, one door of the rehearsal hall and me immediately going out the other door because I just thought I don't belong. I belong at home on the couch watching these people. I don't, what am I doing here? So that informed Gonzo in the early years. And then in, in, a, in a second phase, he became confident as I started to realize that I, I could maybe do this after all. Yeah. I loved another thing you said in that uh, Muppet Guys Talking documentary. You said that as time went on, you realized that the way you made your characters was, I'm going to quote you now, was to find a flaw in myself and try to isolate it and amplify it and try to make it lovable. That's true. And in that, in that way, the work was therapeutic. You know, as all, of the, all of the causes of my low self-esteem were addressed in this manner. And I was able to, uh, I was able to, I, you know, I guess, tolerate myself a little better because of that kind of exercise in my work. Yeah. You know, you've also talked about sometimes your characters being kind of two contrasting forces that are kind of at war uh, within each other. Um, so what would it be for like someone like Bunsen Honeydew, maybe describe Bunsen, or actually, I mean, I suppose you could do bunts and honeydew toys if you want. But I assume this was kind of drawing on your HP experience, the, the scientist. 
Oh, it was. It absolutely was. I, I, one of the fun things about HP was that we did deal with a lot of engineers and a lot of scientific people, and they were colleagues. We worked together every day. And I noticed in a, a couple of people that they lost perspective. They were so granular and specific about what they were looking at that they didn't, they really lost their bearings in terms of the wider world. And I thought that was a funny thing to use for Bunsen. And it, it sort of lined up exactly with the way he was originally written. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that became my entry point for Bunsen. And of course, now it's something that we've been doing for so long. Whenever I do Bunsen, I like to celebrate that. I like to, I like to just exercise his uh, gleeful immersion in science. You know, his, he's just literally out there by himself. Right, to the exclusion of all else, yeah. Well, yes, <laughs> completely unaware of Beaker's suffering, his assistant. <laughs> that is, we watched a, I watched a bunch of those with my kid yesterday, and I mean, <laughs> I'm laughing back just thinking about it because, of course, Beaker is so obviously terrified in Bunsen. Just it's like, come, come, come over here. Okay, let's, let's try this out. Um, talk to me a little bit about some of your other characters as as you created them and you know how you saw their their internal struggles well let's see uh, zoot for example was a sax player and ironically i did not know I, you know i knew that he I, I sort of assumed that he was about 50 years old and i was 26 or 27 and that he lived in a hotel just a residential hotel somewhere in the inner city and that he uh, had never had a home and never had a relationship. And uh, so I couldn't relate to it very fully because I, I just wasn't that guy. And the irony was that I used to give lines away, like just before a table read, I would, I would call her Jerry Nelson, who did uh, Floyd, the bass player, and say, would you take this line? Can you take this line from Zoot? And I don't even know what to do with it. And so Floyd ended up with a lot of Zoot's lines. <laughs> and, and I tried to do as little as possible except for play the sax. Well, as this went on for years, um, we eventually came to the to premiere of the Muppet movie. And there was a party at the Cafe Royale in London afterward. And this guy in a gray suit, little short guy in a gray suit, came running up to me. He says, hey, they tell me you're the guy who does Dave Coles. I can't believe I'm meeting you. This is fantastic. I mean, who does Zoot? I'm sorry said the wrong thing, told my own story wrong. But he, you're the guy who does Zoot. I, I love Zoot. I've known so many sax players like him. Oh, by the way, I'm, I'm Sammy Kahn. Nice to meet you. And it was the great Sammy Kahn who wrote like half of the hits in the world up to that point. And so later we became acquainted, you know, but I, I somehow I had, I had landed on something accidentally that he could relate to about yeah. musicians. You know, tell me about the physicality of being a, 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 you know, a Muppet performer. Oh, don't get me started. Come on. <laughs> Your back is feeling it right now. It's yeah. so difficult. It's, I mean, I remember the, one of the first things that Frank, who was my mentor taught me, and that was that you just have to compartmentalize. You cannot think about the pain while you're working. Well, cut to 50 years later, it's almost 50 years now. I, I've had a hip replacement. I've had a shoulder replacement and multiple surgeries to fix orthopedic problems. Um, and, and that's been my career. You know, I, I, I thought I had a sissy career and it turned out, you know, it was like being a football player. <laughs> you, yeah. you know, a lot of orthopedic surgeons. Yeah. 
And that's literally because, you know, for those who, who can't imagine what's going on, I, I, your, your arm is just above your head inside the puppet the entire time that you're shooting take after take of all these different things, right? Yes. And that's not, a, that's not nice. It's yeah. not a good thing. It's not fun. It hurts. And uh, people don't think about that. But sometimes when I'm doing a talk with, with a live audience, I'll, I'll ask them to all put their hands up while we're talking. And uh, okay, I'm doing and, it. And then I'll just remind them to keep it up. And, and then we will talk some more. And somebody will ask another question. I'll say, oh, by the way, hands still need to be up. We're going to go five minutes here. And they, one by one, they all go down because it's just a ridiculous thing to do to yourself. I'm still doing it just for what it's worth, but uh, oh, you are—you're my hero. <laughs> Luckily, it's radio. You won't know when I quit. Um, so, you know, I wondered then when you see computer animated puppets, you see uh, Muppets. You know, when you see the Muppets turned into things that are just you know kind of manipulated in a computer, does it actually upset you? Or are you like, no, that's a fraud. That's the character, but it's not being embodied by a human in the way that we do it. No, no, not at all. Not at all. Every of every one of these art forms, CG, cell animation, puppetry, has its own sets of pros and cons. And they, you know, there are things that you can do with the camera in CG animation that we cannot do in the real world. Uh, the camera can go right into somebody's eye. It can go through an impossibly small opening and so forth. Things that we just can't shoot with, with real figures like puppets. But then on the other hand, the, one of the strengths of puppets is that it is really happening. Something is actually happening that you can see and hear at the same time. So with our characters, we can go on live television and uh, do appearances. Uh, and you can't do that with CG or cell animation because it's such a long process. And it's not right. No, you're a part of our world. Yeah, that's yeah. right. But yeah. I love I love all these forms. I mean, they're really they're just wonderful ways to express art. We're talking about the Muppets because there's a new exhibition opening up at the Contemporary Jewish Museum this week, the Jim Henson Exhibition, Imagination Unlimited. We've been talking with Dave Goles, who performs Gonzo and other characters on The Muppet Show, and we're going to have other Muppets experts coming up after the break. We'd love to hear from you, though. Who's your favorite Muppet and why? What did the Muppets mean to you? Maybe it changed over the decades. Give us a call now. 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You could talk to Gonzo today. How amazing is that? You can also get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're KQED Forum. Email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. We're talking about the Muppets. There's a new uh, exhibition, the Jim Henson exhibition, Imagination Unlimited, opening this week at the Contemporary Jewish Museum. Want to add a couple voices to our conversation. Heidi Rabin he is the senior curator at Contemporary Jewish Museum. Welcome, Heidi. Thank you. Good to see and, you, Alexis. Yeah, good to talk with you, too. And we also have Brian J. Jones, author of Jim Henson, The Biography. Welcome, Brian. Thank you. It's great to be here, and especially to be here with Dave and Heidi. So, Heidi, uh, I am curious about why you wanted to bring a Jim Henson exhibition, Jim Henson, not Jewish, to the Contemporary Jewish Museum. Yes, excellent question, and one that we're anticipating getting quite a lot of. Um, and absolutely, Henson was not Jewish. We are in, by no means trying to infer that he was. Um, but that said, you know, his work just so clearly celebrates diversity and inclusion, which are both core values of the Contemporary Jewish Museum. Um, and, you know, Henson and his team of builders and performers, Dave, um, and many, many others, uh, you know, wrote and, and shared stories of characters that represent such diverse identities and abilities, um, which really allowed peoples of all backgrounds to see themselves reflected on screen and many for the very first time, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, so this story just, you know, it continues to delight audiences and inspire people of all ages to really look beyond difference and cultivate a more compassionate world, um, which is absolutely in line with our mission as an organization, um, one of the, the tenets that so closely aligns to the Contemporary Jewish Museum is um, the notion of tikkun olam, which in Hebrew uh, more literally means to heal or to repair the world. Um, but in sort of more contemporary Judaism, it has come to really be understood about making a better, making the world a better place and not just for your own, but really for everyone. Um, so it's, it's really about just honoring, you know, Henson's own motivation behind everything that he produced and he did, um, and aligning that with our own mission at the museum. Yeah. Why don't you talk to me a little bit about Kermit? I'm, you know, I, I think Kermit is, you know, maybe the defining Muppet for a lot of people. I mean, for me, it's Miss Piggy, but for a lot of people, it's Kermit. Um, and, and within the context of the Contemporary Jewish Museum and the kind of the way that you're thinking about Muppets, like, how do you think about Kermit? Gosh, yes. Well, Kermit, Kermit is Jim, you know, um, and that's really the way the exhibition opens. Kermit is the first Muppet that you see right next to a giant graphic of, of Jim and Kermit together. And, um, you know, I think it's so beautiful. Kermit is one of the first puppets that Jim created. He created Kermit in, I think, 1955, before he was actually a frog. He was kind of just a, a nebulous puppet. And then he emerged and became, you know, as, as Jim developed, he, he grew him into this, this frog character. But um, Kermit is an introvert. Kermit is, um, you know, quirky and quiet and gentle and creative and innovative and, he's and also, also the boss though too i mean it's a really interesting exactly. model of power and and you know shared creativity yeah yeah and i think i think that the way that jim centered kermit as as all of these things that it was you know a complex flawed character but being a star who was you know quieter um is really groundbreaking and um really opened the door for so many people to identify with that character when you center someone who is not like miss piggy an extrovert and so um you know who i also trust me i, I adore um and that's why they work so well together because they're a completely perfect yin and yang pair as so many of the pairings bunsen and beaker being one of them as well are just such incredible yeah. um you know combinations with one another and, and riff off of one another but 
I think that so many people identify um, with, with the kind of outsider narrative. Gonzo is an incredible outsider. And I think that that is also very much in line with, um, with what we're trying to do is, is as a museum, really elevate these stories of, mm-hmm. of outsider communities, of the Jews being one of them. Yeah. Um, Brian J. Jones, you know, I think it's easy to compress the history in our minds a little bit, like the, when the Muppets came about and how they developed. And one of the most fascinating things to me in learning about Jim Henson's history is how deeply rooted the Muppets really are in the very earliest television history. Like there, people are literally figuring out what to do with the medium. And one of the first people to be doing that is Jim Henson. Well, and Jim Henson was absolutely in love with the medium of television, which is one of the reasons he developed the Muppets. It was his way into TV in Washington, D.C. in 1954. Um, and he turned out to be really good at it. And I think part of the reason he was so great at television is because he didn't know what the rules were. Um, and Jim was not one of these kids who aspired to be a puppet, you know, a puppeteer from a young age. He wasn't Steven Spielberg filming his trains crashing together. And everybody said that Steve's going to be a great director. Jim went to, into puppetry because that was his way in to television. Um, and it turned out he was really great at it and really understood the medium, especially in the early days. Uh, and I'll give you just two quick examples. For example, um, Jim figured out very early on that, you know, when the early puppet shows were Punch and Judy, or I'm sorry, uh, Kukla, Fran and Ollie, and you would film the puppet theater. Jim immediately figured out on TV, you don't need the puppet theater. You use the four sides of the TV screen. That is your puppet theater. The puppets can all of a sudden move in every direction, uh, in every dimension on television. They can rush the camera. They can come in from the bottom, from the top, from the left or the right. That was hugely innovative. It looks to us nowadays, it, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal because that's the way puppets look on TV to us, thanks to Jim Henson. The other thing that he did, um, and this is really incredible, and maybe Dave can talk a little bit about this too. Jim figured out early on that if what you're seeing on the television screen is what matters, you need to be absolutely sure you know how that looks. So Jim solved that problem by putting a television monitor on the floor so he can watch the performance in real time. Now, what that does, apart from just letting you get your head out of the shot and so on, it lets you become a audience member at the same time as you're a performer. That's really the only art form I can think of where this happens. Um, now, I would never be able to do it because you're watching it backwards, your left is your right, your right is your left. And it's, I think it's really tough to do. Um, somebody like Dave, who has done it 50 years, uh, I think can talk this a little bit, but it's, it's a really magical way of performing, I think, as well, um, that no other artist gets to do. That's so interesting. That's I want to. Oh, I, I just wanted to jump in and say that I I wanted to give a plug for Brian's uh, biography of Jim Henson because it's an incredible piece of writing, and all of us who worked side by side with Jim, including Frank Oz, learned things from this book because mm-hmm. Brian delves into every compartment of Jim's life, uh, places that we were not privy to. You know, I was in London, and Jim was off on the weekend going to California to pitch a movie idea. You know, and and uh, so there were all these things that, that none of us knew the big picture. And Brian somehow got that all into the book. So I love the book. Oh, that's great. Thanks for that. Uh, Maricela, on the Bay Bridge right now, um, talk to us about your favorite Muppet. Hi there. Um, just calling to say that my favorite Muppet is Gonzo, specifically because when I was eight or nine, my mom picked me up from school. I'm a December baby. And she surprised me with a copy of um, The Muppets Christmas Carol. So that movie is Christmas for me. That movie is everything, specifically with the dynamic between Gonzo and Rizzo. I am Gonzo. My little sister is Rizzo the Rat. 
So that movie is literally, and it's on repeat. I, when I was living abroad, I could only like, you know, watch uh, certain movies. And that was the one I chose to buy with my few pennies as a student. Um, play that on repeat all year round. But specifically now that I have kids, I'm sharing it um, with my children. And um, we all love it still to this day. So thank you. For Gonzo. Does well, your I sister think... Rizzo the Rat still love the movie too? <laughs> oh yes, Rizzo the Rat. My sister and I are the dynamic duo, and we are um, we're still that. It is us. It yes. is such a good characterization of our dynamic. Sorry about that. Go ahead, Dave. No, I'm just going to say that um, you've hit upon something really important. I think the characters are all of us. Uh, there's a whole constellation of characters in the Muppet world and Jim's world and various things that we've made, and they always start. Uh, as every man, you know, they, they are, they're just us. And th- th- the fact that they're puppets simply allows us some license to, uh, to get more diversity of character. Yeah. Um, thanks so much for that call, Marcel. Really appreciate that. Um, Thank you. Thanks so much. I also, you know, Brian, it feels like the Muppets were one of kind of the earliest incarnations of now something that's around a lot, which is sort of the extended cinematic universe, right? Like they, that there are these characters and they live in this kind of own parallel dimension that crosses over with ours, but it's also its own thing. Like, was that something that Henson kind of developed on first? Well, you know, the Muppet Show is so interesting when you see Jim's earliest pitches for it. He's he's actually kind of struggling at first trying to figure out where where do I locate this? Who's the host of the show? Um, you can you can find some of the early versions of this where he's got, you know, he's got Nigel hosting. You're like, why would you have Nigel host? You've got Kermit on hand um, and and finally figures it out. And, and, the, and the Muppet Show, the, the whole setup for the Muppet Show with doing it in the vaudeville theater and you've got the backstage and the front stage. There's something about that. I mean, it, it's it's lightning in a bottle. There's something about that, that even though none of us, and I was nine when the Muppet Show came on, I hadn't grown up with that. I hadn't even actually grown up with the Mickey Rooney movies about this, but there's something in our DNA about that that feels so familiar, um, that feels so natural for that setup to work. Um, and I think once Jim found the place for that, Everything expanded on that. And I think that's where you see the beginning of the sort of the, the Muppet cinematic universe. Now, of course, you already had sort of the Sesame Street cinematic universe going on at the same time. Uh, and one of the brilliant things Jim did in the first season of the Muppet Show, it, it, it's difficult for people to imagine when I picked up TV Guide at age nine and was reading about the Muppet Show, I didn't know who any of these characters were because we didn't have Fozzie. We didn't have Miss Piggy. Um, in the very first episodes, Jim actually brings in Ernie and Bert as guest stars. Uh, so as I always say, it lets you know you were peeking in the windows of the correct house, even if you didn't necessarily know all the residents of it. Uh, he did that fairly on and helps him build the universe then from that point. Yeah. We're talking about the Jim Henson exhibition, Imagination Unlimited, opening this week at the Contemporary Jewish Museum. We're joined by Heidi Rabin, senior curator at the Contemporary Jewish Museum, Dave Goles, who performs Gonzo and other characters on The Muppet Show, Brian J. Jones, the author of Jim Henson, the biography who you just heard. You know, Heidi, uh, Brian just mentioned the relationship between the different parts of the Muppets universe. And I do think a lot of people associate the Muppets with Sesame Street. So was Henson in on the very beginning of, of that show or how did that relationship develop? Yeah, he was. He was there right at the very beginning. Uh, Joan Gans Cooney brought um, and and John Stone, who were the the creators and, and producers of Sesame Street. Um, when they first came up with the concept, they really we're trying to think about how to make it kind of come to life and, and really speak to children. And they brought 
Jim in really early to that process. Um, and I know that, you know, Brian can even tell you better. Dave can tell you better. I know that Jim was really hesitant at first. He was really concerned because his experience to that point, um, he was really his ambition at that time and really growing up was to be a visual artist. He wanted to be an experimental artist and filmmaker and some of the work that he was working on um, right prior to Sesame Street and in parallel with Sesame Street was really in the pursuit of, of an artistic vision. Um, and then even his, his commercial work that happened prior to that, which is really where he got his start on TV, um, and, and late night kind of variety shows, those were all for adults. That was very much adult focused content. It was not for kids. So he had a lot of hesitation walking into that space, um, mainly because I think he was concerned about being a bit pigeonholed. And I'm sure Brian and Dave can correct me more on that, but but obviously, you know, he he really knew how to talk to kids and really the way was not to dumb it down for them. He talked to them as if they were full, complete humans. He did that approach with Sesame Street and that is completely in line with um, the way that, that uh, the educational vision that Joan had for that show um, was emerging. And that was exactly why I think in part, I mean, there's so many reasons, but I think that's definitely in part why it was so successful. Oh, yeah. I, I grew up watching Sesame Street every single day of my life. You know, I have huge credit to Sesame Street for my own moral compass, the way that I treat people. Um, Ability to count. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Ability to count, to read, all of it, right? Yeah. Um, remember, we do want to hear from our audience's favorite Muppets. Like, who's your favorite Muppet and why? What do the Muppets mean to you? The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, KQED Forum. And let's bring in Amy from Clayton. Hello. Hi, Amy. Hi there. Hi. Um, well, I was just sharing that my favorite Muppet is Animal, and the reason why my favorite Muppet is Animal has less to do with how I experienced the Muppets when I was a child, although it's wonderful to have that continuity that I had an experience with them, and now I get to pass it on to my children. But my six-year-old, um, there is just very few current contemporary um children's programming that translates culturally and so his grandmother speaks five languages but none of them are English uh, she lives in Mumbai and comes to visit us and there's just something about the Manamana song where it's just absolutely culturally competent it's hilarious <laughs> no matter where you're from who you are what language you speak it's hysterical and they laughed exactly at the same time together they could watch it on repeat over and over and over again and still uh, cracked up at the same time, especially the time where Animal, like, goes out of the studio and calls on the phone and says, Manamana, everybody <laughs>, laughs at that because it's hilarious and it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what language you speak. Mm -hmm. So that's my favorite, and we love it. Ah, that's beautiful. Thank you so much, Amy. Appreciate that so much. I want to get to uh, Lakota in Petaluma because Lakota is 12 and loves Gonzo. Welcome to the show, Lakota. Hi. First hey, how's it going? What do you love about Gonzo? His acts are very funny, and even though... Oh, no, we're losing you on the line, Lakota. Oh, shoot. Okay, I'm going to put you on hold, Lakota, and we'll see if we um, can can get you back. Sorry about that. 
Um, you know, I wanted to ask, um, because we've been talking about sort of the inclusivity of the uh, of the Muppets, we do have one uh, person who wrote in to say, as a new parent who grew up watching Sesame Street and Muppets, I've been dumbfounded to realize that all the original Sesame Street characters are male. I believe the Muppets, too, were heavily weighted in that direction. It's a huge deterrent to sharing these wonderful stories with my young daughter, who I'm still trying to shield from the reality that the world is still so male-dominated. And I was wondering, Dave, you know, how do you think about the gender dynamics now looking back at the at the Muppets? Well, it, it just seemed to grow that way organically. And I know it wasn't intentional. Jim used to run workshops periodically. Every year or two, he would advertise in the trades and have a bunch of people come in and uh, teach them a little bit about puppetry for a couple of weeks and see if there was anybody who could join. And I, I have my own personal theory, and that is I think that men uh, are just have an affinity for being fools. <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's just my observation. But we, we did have Fran Brill in the early years, Aaron Oscar. We had, we had a few Please. women who, who decided they wanted to do this with their lives. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, Franny was just astonishing as a, as a performer. She was also a regular actress, too. She's retired now, but, uh, but amazing yeah. talent, really wonderful talent. Yeah. I, it wasn't, it really, I have to say it wasn't intentional ever. Yeah. Heidi, what did you think about it as you were putting the show together? Yeah, great question, Alexis. I think, um, you know, I had the benefit of meeting Dave, gosh, three years ago, I think, when we were first talking about this. Um, And a similar question came up when we first met. And, um, you know, I I appreciate Dave's point of view on that. I think think it's harder for women to have permission to be a fool, to be honest, especially in that time period. and I think, but they're also, you know, that I think I was mentioning in the chat that uh, there were also women behind the scenes that were that were working on the project. You know, Jane was the first Muppet performer along with Jim, and she was hugely Jane is it was Jim's wife, um, hugely influential, instrumental. She was a partner from the very very beginning. Um, Bonnie Erickson, who who's one of the early puppet makers, uh, who created Miss Piggy, who um, you know, there's there's women all over the the thing, but it's maybe less in the performance, right? Fran was the first longstanding Muppet performer. But, um, you know, we, what I think, what I think is so special about the way that the characters come across is that they themselves um, are very diverse uh, and really, really work with uh, the different characters in Sesame Street that, that, that really vocalized those, those values. So it's complicated, but it's been a pleasure to work on. We're talking about the Jim Henson exhibition, Imagination Unlimited, opening this week at the Contemporary Jewish Museum. Let's let's just listen into a song. We'll be back with more after the break. Because you're not standing out like flashy sparkles in the water or stars in the sky. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. It's a fun show this morning. We're talking about Jim Henson, The Muppets, and a new show opening this week, Friday. Right, Heidi? At the Contemporary Jewish Museum. The Jim Henson exhibition, it's called Imagination Unlimited. We're joined by Heidi Rabin, senior curator at the Contemporary Jewish Museum. Dave Goles, who performs Gonzo and other characters like Ben uh, Bunsen, Honeydew. And Brian J. Jones, author of Jim Henson, the biography, highly recommended biography. And we're taking your calls about who's your favorite Muppet and why and or what did the Muppets mean to you? Uh, Kathy in Sunnyvale, tell us about your favorite Muppet. My favorite Muppet is Grover. And the reason I like Grover is primarily because of his little videos explaining here and there, near and far. And he's running back and forth to the camera, away from the camera. He gets very easily confused, but he explains it so well to the children that are watching that it's just, it's endearing. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I, I am also a big Grover fan. I want to say, you know, Dave, at, in your professional opinion, how do you evaluate Grover? Like, what do you see when you when you think about Grover? And I know a little bit about him because of my friendship with Frank. He is uh, all about trying to please. And uh, that's the part of Frank that is in Grover. And th- I think it's what makes him so endearing. He, he's so earnest and he tries so hard. Um, I, oh, I wanted to throw in a quick comp comment about the the uh, exhibition Mm -hmm. and that is that what always affects me when i go through this and i've seen it a couple of times before is the sense of journey that this was jim's path in life and and you could sense that when you met him as you go through the exhibit you'll see that as 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 time went on he gathered people together and brought them in and let them have a voice in what was being done. He chose carefully and he chose uh, an amazing variety of people. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know, when I joined, I just felt that whole sense that we were, we were going someplace together. We were on a little journey. Mm-hmm. And uh, that helped me frame my whole life that way. Yeah. And, you know, and find, find grow, you know, areas of personal growth where I wanted to grow and, and make those things happen. It gives you, it's just about a sense of possibility, I think. Yeah. Um, this actually plays quite nicely into this uh, comment we just got from Shana, who said, thanks so much for playing the clip of Grover. And for this segment, delightful. Grover was always my favorite character when I was growing up in the early 80s. And I've always felt that Elmo ushered in the end. His shallow hysteria pretty much hollowed out Sesame Street, in my opinion. And what I'd like to ask out of that comment, Brian, is the Muppets changed with time, right? And they were their own thing, and they had a solidity that moved through time, but they also reflected the eras in which they they existed. Could you kind of walk us forward? You know, we've talked about Sesame Street in the 1960s kind of public television era. We've talked about the nighttime variety show era. We've talked about the early TV era. But what comes kind of 1970s commercial TV and then into the 80s and beyond? 
Well, and Heidi touched on this a little bit. What I find so fascinating about Jim, and as Dave even mentioned, is Jim was just creatively restless, which is why I think it's great that the exhibit is, you know, Imagination Unlimited. Um, you know, Jim's got the biggest show in the world with The Muppet Show. And in 1981, he takes it off the air. Um, chooses to take it off. Nobody canceled it. Nobody was asking for it to be canceled. Jim, and this is a very Jim word, says that's a very nice show, Jim says. Um, but he's ready to go make movies now. He's ready to work on The Dark Crystal, which was a hugely important movie to him, really sort of reflects his artistic sensibilities, I think, you know, even more so than The Muppets. Um, so he's ready to go off and do other things. And that's what's really exciting about the exhibit. One of the things I love about it um, and I'm, I'm going to back up just a little bit because one of the eras I love in Jim's career is the 60s. And, and the exhibit is so great on that. When you walk in, you're going to be surprised because you do get Kermit right away. And then you turn the corner and here's Wilkins and Wilkins, you know, the, in these coffee commercials doing terrible things to each other. And you can't look away. Um, and you've got Jim talking about doing a, a themed adult nightclub where they're going to project videos on broken glass. And, you know, Jim has to abandon this project because really the technology doesn't exist for it yet. So, so that's one of the things I think people will find really exciting about this exhibit is there's so much in it that is familiar and so much in it that I think is going to be really new to people. And, you know, you'll keep finding the touchstones you're looking for while you're standing, looking at, you know, Wilkins and Wilkins here are Ernie and Bert, you know, you'll see, you'll see a lot of the same, the same faces. Um, but you get to Jim doing something like the dark crystal in 1982. And, and it looks so different than everything else he's done, but what else is he doing at the same time? Fraggle rock. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the very first made for, if you love, uh, the Sopranos and Game of Thrones, you can thank Fraggle Rock, which was the very first made for HBO feature on there. And that is Jim's show where he actually says to his writers, I want to do a show that will stop war. Uh, and I think that's getting the, the point Heidi made at the beginning of this. Why, why would you do this at the Jewish Museum? Because Jim's trying to do something that will stop war. This is what drives Jim Henson. And that's what makes his work, I think, so timeless and so memorable. Yeah, we got to listen to a little bit of Fraggle Rock. Just one sec. What? Be fair and treat everybody as if they were me. I vow, I vow, right now, right now, to never do bad things or act selfishly well. I swear to be cheerful. I swear to be true. I swear to be faithful in all that I do. I swear, I swear, to be fair, to be fair, and treat everybody like me. God, I love it. I swear. Um, so, uh, Heidi, how did you see this? I, I feel like Fraggle Rock was a very significant piece for you in, in terms of like framing up this exhibition for yourself. Maybe for people who haven't seen it, you could give people just a sense of like what the show is. Sure. Wow. Well, Fraggle Rock, uh, another one that I grew up watching my entire life, um, is an incredible, you know, sort of more influenced, like Brian was saying, by the fantasy stuff that that Jim was working on at the time, um, but really retained a lot of that kind of childlike, um, you know, very much a child audience centered show. Um, and it really involves, you know, three disparate um, species that are all interconnected and interdependent, but definitely have conflict with one another. And those are, of course, the Fraggles, the Doozers, and the Gorgs. Um, and all three of them operate kind of, you know, very uh, introspectively and, and somewhat in conflict with one another. Um, and yet they are totally, you know, reliant on one another in ways that they don't always see. And there's a favorite episode of mine that we're actually going to be screening at the museum in a parallel space to the main gallery um, 
in its entirety. It was really important to us that uh, we provided some space for some feature length and, and full episodes to be able to be viewed in proximity to the exhibition. Of course, you can stream all these things from home, but we felt like it was really important to kind of step out of the exhibition and be able to spend some time with the full length content. Um, and this episode is about uh, Marjorie the Trash Heap, who is a character in Faggle Rock <laughs> that is almost like a, she's got, she's got a very Yiddish accent, I must say, and she um, is kind of like a guru and, and really is trying to get the Fraggles, the Doozers and the, the Gorgs to realize how much they depend on one another. And, and in doing so, she, she magically removes the radishes from their lives, which is how they all sustain themselves. Um, the Doozers- And it's called the Great Radish Famine, right? That's right. Yes, the doozers, they use the radishes to make their the the buildings that they that they build. The fraggles eat the radishes and the buildings that the doozers create. And the gorgs use them to kind of create this powder that that makes them present. So the gorgs start disappearing and and the doozers don't know what to do with themselves. <laughs> There's all sorts of chaos that ensues in, in Marjorie's effort to get them to understand that they that they rely on and need one another in spite of their differences. So, um, and like Brian said, it's the only, you know, well, not the only, but it's the main show that Jim was so explicit about it being about world peace yeah. and about coexistence. Yeah, have- so in harmony, harmony with the environment. And, and I would say also that the Jim Henson Company has just produced uh, 13 new episodes of Fraggle Rock that uh, we were all involved with. And, um, and the reason is that it is a timeless idea. And, you know, in the, today's world, kids have new issues to cope with. So this mm-hmm. show will, will focus on those things. And is that out yet, Dave? Yeah, it's out okay. on Apple TV+. Plus. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Um, we have a bunch more comments coming in of people's favorite Muppets. Uh, just want to get through some of those. Stuart writes... Best Bunsen honeydew line ever, explaining the waning invisibility of a potion he created. The effects are sadly temporary. <laughs> Laura writes, Oscar is hands down my favorite. He was a grouch and so was I. As a child, Oscar helped me realize that I could be lovable. He was a big grouch but very lovable. He made it okay for me to be myself. My mom supported me and my interpretation. She and Oscar helped me realize that it was okay to embrace all my feelings, both positive and negative, and to be tolerant of other people who were also moody. Pete tweets, don't forget, super Grover. Lois writes, my favorites have to be Bert and Ernie, a hilarious duo. They are the Muppet version of the odd couple. Andy writes, I loved Bunsen and Beaker the most, probably because I'm an engineer, but I also loved Waldorf and Stadler. Those are the guys up in the uh, in the balcony. I have a friend who looks and behaves like Waldorf. Don't we all, Andy? Don't we all? Um, let's uh, bring in Amber from Half Moon Bay. Hi, Alexis. Hey, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking my call, and thanks for having the show. I am a huge Muppets fan, and I'm so excited to check out that exhibit. Um, I wanted to talk about the greatest movie of all time, which is The Great Muppet Caper. Go ahead. Talk about it. Let's hear about it. <laughs> so I grew up with this movie. I was born in 1979, so th- I saw this when it first came out. Um, this movie has held up so great throughout time and I've shown it to my kids like they are at seven and five and they love the movie it's full of great one-liners it's it's full of camaraderie it's hysterical I mean the one line (laughs) we caught them with the red hand we caught them red-handed and then Gonzo says well what color are their hands now I mean I still use that one it's just (laughs) so funny (laughs) I just like best movie it's 
I was a film major, and this is still my favorite movie of all time. Oh, that's so funny! Hey, I uh, would say I would jump in and say that uh, the um, that movie is also a tour de force of puppetry, cinematic puppetry, uh, where there are so many trick things that were done in that film: the bicycle riding, piggy underwater in the pool. Tell tell us about one of them or two of them. Well, um, oddly enough, the the bicycle riding was something that happened in the Muppet movie, and there was a special effect built for it, and it didn't work that day. It was it fell over, the bicycle fell over and broke. Uh, it was basically a bicycle that had a mirror between the two wheels facing camera and, that concealed a motor behind it. So, so the foreground dirt from the shot, and you didn't see that there was a motor running this motorcycle, this, this bicycle. But it fell over and broke, and so they had to get the bicycle. And after many, many takes, using a Chapman crane as a sort of a puppeteering platform, um, they never got a good one. I mean, we were always unhappy with the result. They had to move on and couldn't, couldn't really get it right. The bicycle is kind of tilted. Kermit's riding along, leaning to his left. And, uh, and so we were dissatisfied with it, but it became the thing that everybody asked about in the Muppet movie. Everybody wanted to know how Kermit rode a bike. So in the, in the Muppet caper, Jim decided to just take it to the limit. So he did an elaborate musical number uh, in a park in London with uh, Kermit and all the characters riding bikes. Many, many rigs, many very clever rigs, uh, very complex. Took a week to shoot that one song. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I've, I've heard you say that you feel like the reason the Muppets didn't have a ton of imitators at the kind of scale and complexity is just because what you were doing was more or less impossible. Uh, nobody was crazy enough to do all the things that we tried to do, you know, and, and it took time. We, we sometimes we took a lot of takes. We did a special called Emmett Otter, uh, Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, where uh, a drum rolls out of a music shop into the street and it is supposed to land in a certain way. And I think we did like, uh, it seems to me, 36 takes, which at that time was our record. But we did break that record later on with many other shots. Like Jim just had what Jerry Jewell, our head writer, called a whim of steel. Like he just thought it would be really nice if the drum landed this way. Uh, and he would go until he got it. I mean, one shot in the Muppet 3D movie that we did uh, for the Disney parks uh, involved five hours of shooting to get this single shot working. We worked on it for the latter part of a day. And then we came back the next day and worked on it for a few more hours and got it. And the running time of the shot is maybe 10 seconds, but that was Jim. He wanted to get it right. He would do whatever it took. Yeah. I want to bring in uh, one last caller, Barbara. Hey, Barbara, welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. Wonderful program. I'm appreciating it. I've, I've loved puppets since... Shari Lewis with Lamb Chop and Kuk and Kukla Frananali. So uh, my I know of the history of puppetry. Um, I had a wonderful experience uh, decades ago here in San Francisco. Um, I went to the, what it was called then the Hall of Flowers at the Botanical Garden on the south side of, of Golden Gate Park, and they had an exhibit of the actual puppets. Mm-hmm. And my wow. favorite, of course, because she was. Uh, an early w- women's liver and righteously bitchy was Miss Piggy. And I saw her up close. And I have never seen such exquisite craftsmanship as I saw looking at her. Her head was about as big as mine. 
Yeah. And, and and it was exquisite. It was it was kind of a velvety fabric, and every detail, even six inches away, was wonderful. So this is a good time to jump in and say something about the Muppet Workshop because oh, you should. Folks, yeah. These folks are incredible artists, and I. I appreciated it. I, I mean, I worked in the workshop too and made some of the puppets, but um, it wasn't until I saw them in a museum in glass cases that I realized they were really fine art. They were just beautifully crafted art. Uh, our characters usually had clothes with real practical pockets in them. And sometimes the coats were lined, you know, the, the folks in our workshop and, uh, and all, uh, who also include costume people are just the best in the world. They're just absolutely extraordinary. Because you actually, you made some at the beginning and then you turned into a pure performer. I did. Well, my entree, was uh, the place where I could be useful was uh, in making and designing puppets because I was a, a designer before I joined. I was not a performer before I joined. So it was logical for Jim to want me to, to, to work in the shop, which I did. Uh, I built the original Animal, the original Floyd, the original Zoot, Floyd the bass player, Zoot the sax player, and uh, some others. and uh, But my real interest from the beginning was in being a performer, even though I had no qualifications whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what the right qualification for being a performer was. I uh, wanted to uh, get one, to like one last uh, comment in. Lakota, who's the 12-year-old whose line, unfortunately, we, we couldn't rescue, uh, wrote in comment. Uh, and Lakota says, I love Gonzo because his acts are incredible. My favorite was when he tried to drive a motorcycle into Stadler and Waldorf's booth. I also like the Swedish chef, especially when he made chocolate mousse. Um, could you, Dave, for Lakota, our 12-year-old, just give us one of your, one of your, you give us Gonzo, you give us Waldorf, I believe you're Waldorf too. Just, you know, just for a quick, quick moment of in character for Lakota. Oh, well, this is just for Lakota. I just wanted to say as the great Gonzo, I depend heavily on having an audience. And uh, they're few and far between, I assure you. But anyway, Lakota, thank you for calling in and thank you for writing back. And have a great day. Thank you so much, Dave. I love performers on the show. We have been talking about the Jim Henson exhibition, Imagination Unlimited and the Wonder of Muppets. That show is opening this week at the Contemporary Jewish Museum. We have been joined by Brian J. Jones, author of the Jim Henson, the biography. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Heidi Rabin, senior curator at the Contemporary Jewish Museum, who helped bring the show to the museum. Thank you so much, Heidi. Thank you so much, everyone. And of course, Dave Goals, who performs Gonzo, as you just heard, and other characters on The Muppet Show. Thank you, Dave, for all of it. Thank you very much. It's been an honor to talk to you. Thanks, Alexis. Thank you. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Kermit. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead. Someday we'll find it, the rainbow connection, the lovers, the dreamers, and me. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.